Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I am Al Hunt. This week, our guest is the U.S. national editor and columnist, and one of our favorite guests from the Financial Times, Ed Luce. And remember, we love taking your questions, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Workable, Stamps.com, and the Jordan Harbinger Show in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, Joe Biden's State of the Union was fine. He was very strong in Russia, Ukraine. We'll talk with Ed Luce about that. And he touched on a lot of good notes. It was too long, probably. And Joe Biden is not a terrific orator. He's not an Obama, Clinton, or a Reagan. But he and his party are in a hole. And I don't want to overdo this, but they may be starting to dig back. I mean, certainly Ukraine, uh, Biden has looked very good. COVID seems to be really, uh, uh, you know, if not ending, certainly on the way down. And a lot of good stuff about the economy. And what continues to perplex me, though, is why Republicans don't pay any price for their crazies. We had, we had two of them going to a Nazi white nationalist forum this week. And then two of the crazies screaming at the president during the State of the Union. That should plague Kevin McCarthy every day. But if some of the Democratic fringe attended a terrorist or a communist confab, the chorus would be after Nancy Pelosi, you know, Monday through Sunday and one extra day if they could find one. So um, on that note, I'll turn it over to you. Well, I think you, you – correctly paid not near enough price, but the lesson from that is not to keep pointing it out, is but to keep pointing it out. And, and uh, I, in, in terms of the president's speech, he had the strongest thing he could have going into it, and that is people wanted him to succeed. And mm-hmm. I think as my told as a poll, like 75% of people liked it. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, there's nothing that makes a speech better than people wanting to the speech to succeed, and I think everybody felt the same way. Look, is it... You know, one of these Oklahoma City moments or, or, or Charleston, South Carolina moments or Berlin moments? Well, no. But I, I can tell you that I, I do think he did himself some good. I, not, I don't know what the speech department at some university would grade it, but I, I, th- I think it was fine. It was, you know, I could probably say, well, that's a little bit of a laundry list. But uh, he, he, he did what he had to do, and people were ready for it. Yeah, he did, and he wasn't he wasn't eloquent. We knew he wouldn't be. They didn't expect him to be. He was himself. He was authentic. Uh, I think that counts for something, uh, and um, uh, I think it was <laughs> the Republicans had to strain to cheer. They couldn't help but cheer during Ukraine. They weren't really happy about it, uh, and he got a really rousing uh, response from the Democratic side. So all in all, I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not going to grade it, but it would certainly be a you know, a, a, a better than average performance, particularly given the expectations. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that that's accurate. And I think that, you know, and it's like your teacher, I've given a lot of students grades and the ones that I want to succeed, sometimes I give them a better grade. And I think that's what's happening here. Oh, I'm totally fair. I'm just straight down the, down the middle. Right. We'll move on now. Right. Uh, first primary uh, this week, uh, Texas. Uh, not a whole lot there, just to note a couple things. Um, 
in the congressional races, uh, there was a liberal woman, Jessica Cisneros, running against an ethically challenged Henry uh, Quaylar in the Democratic primary down the valley, I think. She didn't really run as a lefty. AOC came in to endorse her, but she really ran more as a mainstream uh, progressive. She was for Medicare for All. They're in a runoff. It's very, very close. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I think it'd be perfectly fine if she wins. I'm a little more disturbed, James, about an Austin district where the Democrat, which I guess is a deep blue district, where the uh, Democratic nominee is going to be a member of the Socialist of America. That's usually not a good, a good sign, but we'll see. But my favorite race, the race I just love down there, is the Republican primary for attorney general. I mean, Ken Paxton, the incumbent attorney general, has been under state indictment for like six years. The FBI is now investigating him. Uh, his own office is testifying against him, apparently. And, of course, he finished first. Now, he's in a runoff. Uh, he's in a runoff against George P. Bush, who is running as a Trump Republican rather than his namesake Republican. I mean, it really is one where uh, I don't know who you want to cheer for, but uh, it's, it says a lot about Texas Republicans. Yeah, and, and, and just note one thing on the Boston race. Central Austin is much closer to Central Boston than it is anywhere else. Yeah, I, I mean, people don't really appreciate sometimes how liberal a Democratic primary can be there. I, I, I don't know all of the, the, the circumstances, but I, I wouldn't, I'd be reluctant to, I would read something into it, but I'd have to talk to some people in Texas before. Before I form a better opinion on that, right? We can ask Paul for sure. Now, I, yeah. I don't think it. I don't think it says anything about Texas. I just think um, I don't know anything about this guy. Maybe you know, perfectly good. I just when it says socialist uh, of America, you begin to think, oh my God, that's a you know, I that's do. the fringe squad. I, I but you know, I'm not sure. One thing I would note because I don't want to let this pass uh, is that one of the losers in the in my favorite Texas Republican primary for Attorney General was Louis Gohmert. Louis Gohmert is leaving the House after he no longer could, could claim that he was the looniest member of the House. Uh, some of the new members became far loonier, so Louis went to run for AG. He got trounced, of course. Um, but, I, you know, let's give a salute to Louis James. He gave us a lot of laughs. He didn't mean to, but he gave us a lot of laughs over the year. So, Louis, we're going to miss you. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, there's no, nothing... You know, funnier than a fool that doesn't know they're a fool. <laughs> he doesn't know he's a fool. James, <laughs> right. just final note on Texas before we move on. I, I guess, and I haven't talked to anyone down there, I haven't done any reporting. Just looking at the numbers, it appears there was a, a considerably heavier Republican turnout than Democratic turnout. And I don't know if that had anything to do with some of the voter suppression laws that took effect for the first time in this primary, whether it had to do with the enthusiasm gap or there were some other circumstances. Uh, you know, there was a contested gubernatorial race, but not really. So, um, you know, I, I, I just, um, that's a, a, bit of, a, a bit of a note of disquiet. Well, it's, just, it's, a, it's on a continuum. I mean, everything that's come in has been, you know, in, including November of 2021, has been horrible. And, you know, if the situation doesn't change... It's going to be horrible, but we got to work on trying to change the situation. I think last night was a start, and uh, you know we got some some good issues coming our way. I mean, the the the, the, the anti-Russia sentiment is profound and deep, and and they're conflicted. They got a lot of stuff out there that they've said. And we you know one of the things that we have to do 
in, I was talking to people in Pennsylvania, we got to organize the Eastern European dysphoria, from, you know, not just Ukrainians, of course, primarily, but, but Poles and, and Slovenians and Romanians and you, right. you name it, you know, the whole thing. We got to go in because we've been losing these communities uh, over the elections and we have to go back in there and remind them who's standing up to for them. So, uh, I, you know, there, there's some things that we can do, I promise you. James, I'll give you an indicator why you're so right about that. J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance in Ohio said, you know, I, uh, pandering to Donald Trump, said, I really don't care what happens to Ukraine. And right. about a day or two later, some of his people said, for God's sakes, J.D., you idiot, do you realize there are 80,000 uh, either Ukrainian immigrants or descendants of Ukrainian immigrants in Ohio, not to mention those from Poland and Czechoslovakia and some other places, all of whom hate Russia? Uh, and J.D. Vance tried to do a 180, and he was just about as good at it as he's been in his whole campaign. But I think it does attest to the point you're making. Yeah, they, they, need, they need to call that guy a 180. I mean, that's his Monica. I mean, that's all he does. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, he, he ought to live like in the, in the South Pole, true South. I mean, he's a 180 addict. He is. James, we have one of our favorite guests, Ed Luce, chief Washington commentator and columnist for the Financial Times. Earlier, he was the FT Southeast Asian correspondent, so he really knows the entire globe. Ed, the last time we were together several months ago, you were very critical of Biden's Afghanistan policy. Let me ask you about it in this current, I think, far graver crisis. Assess Joe Biden's performance so far. Well, it's a really good, first of all, delight to be back on. Um, uh, it's a really good question because I think um, uh, the what stung Biden most of the Afghanistan crisis, and if you couple it with the AUKUS announcement and the French distemper with not being warned about this submarine deal with Australia, if you couple those two together, it was the allegation that Biden had been ignoring European counterparts, that America wasn't back in that respect, that it was disrespecting allies. You've seen really textbook, um, exemplary consultation of all European and other partners over the Russia invasion of Ukraine and the build-up to it. And really, we've been seeing this since last November um, when the Russian troops started amassing on the Ukraine border. And I have not heard a single complaint from European diplomats about the level of contact, consultation, of internal debate. This is a, an incredibly important uh, improvement in how the Biden administration conducts diplomacy. Ed, you have watched this for a long time. Did you ever imagine, really, that Germany would be sending military equipment to Ukraine or boosting its defense budget? Switzerland would abandon neutrality. Finland would talk about joining NATO. I think Biden, as you just cited, deserves credit. Putin deserves a lot of credit, too. He really is the unifier, uh, it would seem to me, in this. People are realizing you can't do business with a thug. You can't. And, you know, it's so telling uh, none of us really anticipated this. We didn't anticipate Olaf Schultz 
would become a leader. We didn't anticipate Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky would become a leader. You don't really know until the rubber hits the road, till the crisis um, um, is swirling around us, who is going to stand up and who isn't. And talking of Afghanistan, the contrast between Ashraf Ghani taking off without informing his office with, with suitcases full of cash in a helicopter in the middle of the afternoon um, from Kabul last August, and Zelensky uh, out there with a gun in fatigues with his cabinet around him, um, rallying his people, is a case study in the importance of leadership. This is an extraordinary moment, and I give um, credit, inadvert, unwitting credit to Putin, first of all. Biden would, would be high up on the list, but Putin... Putin has created things that we couldn't imagine would have happened uh, even 10 days ago. Ed, do you see an off-ramp for Putin, either external pressures from China or India, other uh, people he does business with who say, you got to get out of this, or internal pressures? Uh, I think the the colleagues of mine, you know, who are really well-versed, and there's one, Max Seddon, you know, in Moscow, who does sort of simultaneous Russian and Ukrainian translations live on Twitter. He's a really, really good correspondent. Um, point out that when we th- when we talk of oligarchs, um, the implication of that word is there are lots of independent power centers with money, men with money, and sort of all, almost like medieval um, uh, barons. Um, that's misleading. The oligarchs of today are entirely dependent on Putin. These are not people who helped Putin get there. These are people Putin helped get rich. And so the idea that they're going to sort of, I don't know, like a Roman Senate of of the ancient world uh, come together and say, you know, this emperor's outlived his usefulness might be wishful thinking. Um, As too might be the idea the Russian people are going to rise up. Uh, It's really easy for us from here to say, look, just if you do it in large enough numbers, um, he can't arrest or shoot all of you. It's really easy for us to say that because this guy is turning from an autocrat into a totalitarian. He's getting more paranoid, more brutal, um, and more um, willing to take massive risks as time goes on. Um, and I think, you know, this image of him sitting at the end of long tables in the Kremlin, um, the paranoia and isolation is is really captured in those images. It's stunning. I mean, I don't have any idea, but my suspicion is he was worried about getting bumped off. It doesn't have anything to do with COVID, but uh, in any event, uh, it's it's an incredible scene. You know, if if there is no off-ramp, he's ultimately going to prevail militarily. I mean, that Russian force is so much bigger, so much more lethal. But then he has to occupy Ukraine, which is going to prove a nightmare. But, But, Ed, don't you figure his calculation is the West is going to run out of patience that uh, he doesn't have to worry about midterm elections. Uh, he has oil that the Europeans need. And that. And I, I don't agree with this, but he thinks time is on his side, I would guess. Yeah, I, I think that has to be the calculation. It's a very, very risky calculation. He clearly thought that his response to the invasion of Ukraine um, from the West would be that this would be another example like Crimea, like Georgia in 2008, like all sorts of more uh, minor provocations in between, would simply divide the West, uh, exploit democracy's weaknesses, um, and that he would get away with it. Not 
to mention his assumptions about the Ukrainian reception that he was going to get. He's been proved diametrically wrong so far um, about the West. It's galvanized um, from the grassroots, from the base, really. You know, the football crowds, the soccer crowds at these clubs waving Ukrainian flags, um, singing the Ukrainian anthem, lionizing Ukrainian players. Um, it proceeds by days UEFA and FIFA uh, at the top taking action against Russia. Um, so, I mean, his bet is that this is a brief, ter- brief viral emotive wave that's going to go away. I-, I have to say, I think this is real. Um, and I think if there's a silver lining here, you know, I've written about the retreat of Western liberalism. There is an opportunity here for the regrouping of Western liberalism. There's nothing like a crisis. There's nothing like smelling the fear of what Putin represents to make people relearn what is valuable about our systems. And so I've got a bit more faith that Putin is wrong on that and as wrong as he has been on, you know, Ukraine's supposed lack of national feeling. You know, if there had been any, there isn't any lack anymore. Boy, that's for sure. James? So, Ed, if I were on a metal stand, you know, given the gold, silver, bronze, the gold would go to Zelensky and the Ukrainians, clearly. The silver would go to Biden. I mean, it just would. I mean, he's, he's, as you pointed out, and and a third, and I completely agree with you, is the third person on the stand I would put is the European street. I I mean, I think, you know, I think Biden smartly didn't, you know, demand that they come along. And I think these European politicians saw which way this wind was blowing and, and got right quickly. And, you know, it's become almost a cottage industry to, to, you know, make fun of the EU and it's feckless and, you know, won't stand up for anything. I, 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 I completely agree with what you said. This is a watershed moment. I would, you know, and I, and I also agree that I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. But you, you, you obviously have the same sense, don't you? I do. Um, I think that the surprise when the German Chancellor Schultz gets up and makes that speech. What was it, five days ago now? Mm -hmm. Um, In the Bundestag, uh, without really having consulted his colleagues, it took them, his cabinet colleagues, it took them by surprise too, was because this man's a politician. He read the German mood has changed. You know, that old cliche that Lenin that quote from Lenin, apparently it wasn't Lenin, that, you know, there are, there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. Well, we're in one of those periods where decades are happening. We've been debating for as long as I can remember, um, will Germany increase its defence budget and change its defence po- posture? Will it realise that the world trusts it again? Uh, more than we trust ourselves in some respects because we know how well Germany's abide that lesson. For 30 years, we've been having that debate um, and nothing changed. In one week, it's, it's scrapped. And I think that's because he read the mood um, and he read it correctly. Um, you look at what's happening in terms of um, civil society groups in Europe taking their own initiative. They're not waiting for governments. In some respects, governments are following them. Right. I, I, in, boy, I, I, you know, a lot of things. So the, the, you have 
insight into this, given your experience and your contacts. One of the questions people ask me that I, I, I really don't know the answer to is, what is China thinking about all of this? What, do, do you have any, anything to offer on that front? Do, do, what do you, you think China is thinking? Do you have any evidence of their thinking? Well, so the one-off ramp that, you, you know, that Al was asking about earlier, the one-off ramp that I can plausibly think of um, is a China-mediated um, solution to this. And, you know, whether that would involve ceding the Donbass along with Crimea, um, but then getting a full guarantee and, and Ukraine being permitted to join the West. What, what, what that would look like, I don't know. But there is no, there's no figure in the West who could plausibly mediate. Um, when you get two positions this extreme, they're not going to come to agreement on themselves. Ukraine-Russia talks are never going to go anywhere. Um, the only plausible way this can be brokered diplomatically is by a big independent power. And the only one I can think of is China. Um, that being said, um, China, you know, Xi Jinping has met, had 38 separate meetings with Putin. It's more than double any other world leader. Um, they celebrate each other's birthdays. They call themselves best friends. They've just signed a document that said there are no limits to China and Russia's friendship and partnership. Um, China feels encircled. It feels like there is a, an autocracy versus democracy dynamic going, and therefore its lot is with Russia. Um, we can only hope that Putin has so overplayed his hand that this is alarming China to such a degree that it's going to in some way, whether it's through mediation or private restraint uh, and counsel between Xi and Putin, try and do something to rein Putin back in. Because I can't think really of any other figure, any other power that could restrain Putin at this point. He's, you know, he knows if he loses this war, he's not going to be going into retirement on the Black Sea. Uh, his, his, as a phrase, you know, others have used, but he's a cornered rat. And when a cornered rat um, has nowhere to go, It'll do anything. And, and I do believe you know, that Fiona Hill interview that came out this week, I think she's right. I think he's capable of doing many, many ghastly things. So, so India is trying to position themselves there, but I, 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 I kind of agree with you. I, I, don't, I don't think India has the, the, the moxie to negotiate this. Now, you, you, China would, but... You know, the United States, China is an adversary, clearly. And if they did that, that would be a, could be a significant blow to American prestige, huh? right? But no. Um, I, I think that Biden has been, uh, in the build-up to this, Biden was encouraging Xi, without much response apparently, to, to restrain Putin. Um, uh we can't know what was said between Putin and Xi when Putin went there for the Olympic opening. Um, some people have speculated that um, Xi was basically rumbled. He got no forewarning from Putin at that meeting what was going to happen. Um, but you know, we can't know the answer to any of these questions. But I don't think it would be humiliating for a, a, another office, an independent power, and. You know, this is really the only one with weight I can think of to try and try and 
tamp down tensions here. You could even get a surprising sort of short-term relaxation in US-China tensions um, if, if Beijing could play a role here. And Beijing's a very, it's not an adventurous power like Putin is. It's got a, a different sort of timetable and time horizon. It's not worried about a color revolution. Putin's dread is a color revolution. His dread is being Gaddafi, is being sort of beaten to death by angry people. That's not China's. Um, that's not China's id. It's got a very different perspective, and so I think there could be a constructive. Maybe I'm being a little bit too rose tinted, but there could be a constructive China role here. Albert, and I think up until the last several days, of the last week, it was kind of accepted wisdom that sanctions never really work. They're always full of loopholes. They really aren't that effective. It's just something you have to do, but they don't change behavior. This seems different. This seems a lot different. Tell us why. Uh, we've never seen on this scale sanctions that that shut off central bank. Reserves. I mean, Venezuela, you know, is is a little bit different, um, but we've never seen anything applied like this uh, to a serious country, let alone a, um, a nuclear power. Um, and I don't think Putin had factored that in into his calculations. Uh, so we can vaporize Russian growth. We can put it into deep recession. In fact, we already are in the early stages of uh, a deep recession, stroke dep depression in Russia that is going to cause a lot of harm um, to Russian sort of sense of well-being. Um, I guess our bet is that that combined with oligarchs losing all their assets and their places in British prep schools and so forth um, is going to produce, I don't know, a social revolution or a palace coup, an assassination, I don't know. Um, it's new in terms of the scale and unity in which these sanctions are being applied. But we don't have a particularly good record um, through history of sanctions working quickly to avert wars. Um, so, I mean, this is a fascinating and very, very high stakes experiment that I think is going to ratchet up because we're still buying Russian oil and gas, well, the Europeans in particular are. And that's going to continue funding Putin, even if most of his foreign exchange reserves, which are big, because he's really built them up since the Crimean um, annexation, uh, even if we uh, freeze, uh, uh, manage to deny him access to most of Russia's foreign exchange reserves, if we're buying his gas and oil, or if China is taking some of that slack, and Pakistan just today announced a, a deal to buy Russian gas, then then he can, he can keep replenishing the coffers and funding this war, which, by the way, is estimated to cost $20 billion a day. $20 billion a day is not small change. Um, so, particularly, um, for an army that, particularly for an army that's not performing. <laughs> particularly for an army that's taking its time. Right. Uh, and so the pressure is going to, you know, return to Biden and the Europeans to say, well, we've got to shut that spigot off. And if it means us taking a lot of pain, even more inflation in the build-up to the midterms, well, that's going to be a very, there's no easy answer. That's going to be a very, very tough decision for Biden to make. 
and me, his European counterparts. Let me ask you a question about about your native um, your native land. I think before Ukraine, there was a sense that Boris Johnson, besieged by scandal, botched handling of COVID, that he really may be on the way out. Has this given him a new lifeline? Yeah, he's doing his best to imitate Churchill, not very effectively, but it's given him a reprieve. The conversation's completely switched. The focus is now relentlessly on Ukraine. And he has on one sort of side of it stepped up, which is the military aid and the rhetoric, the, the sort of a diplomatic support. He's been strong. Britain's been, you know, ahead of most in terms of shipping um, lethal weaponry to Ukraine. Um, but on the oligarchs, it's been, actually Britain's been described, I think, accurately so far as the weakest link. And, you know, if you want to, if, if there's a mainstream political party, so forget AFD, forget Marine Le Pen, Marie Le Pen, just look at um, a, re a serious party. There's none that beats the conservatives of Britain in terms of financial ties to Russian oligarchs. Um, and so it's been very dilatory, it's been very half-hearted and not impressive so far. And uh, the pressure's going to be on Johnson to really um, find some oligarchic scalps because there, there are plenty available in London. There's plenty of properties, plenty of companies, plenty of super yachts. There's, London has more than any other city and very few of them yet um, have been claimed. And the time they're taking to draw up these lists of oligarchs and the rules is giving them time to basically shift their assets right. offshore. Well, I hope he's getting hammered for that because he certainly uh, deserves to be. You know, when you talk about military equipment going to the Ukrainians, I mean, you can, I know how hard they're fighting. God, they're the most courageous people uh, I, you, you can imagine. You, you just wish they had more. When I read about a 40-mile-long convoy, that is a sitting duck. I mean, I cannot imagine a more vulnerable target, except the Ukrainians don't have enough airplanes or pilots to take it on. Uh, so I don't know how quickly we can get them stuff, probably not airplanes and pilots, but even other stuff. A 40-mile convoy is a, an open convoy. You can see it from there. It should be a disaster, Ed. Yeah, uh, although, you know, it's, it's also a traffic jam. <laughs> yeah, it is. They, on Monday, they moved three miles. Yeah. Three yeah. miles. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how, how far they've moved since then, but they've been 20 miles from Kiev since Sunday. So it's like, well, this isn't this isn't exactly a, a rapidly moving convoy. Right. There are there are um, energy supply. There are there are oil is issues, gas issues. There Ooh. are logistics issues. There are um, supply issues that um, are, are quite breathtaking when you consider you know all the time Putin's had to plan this operation. Um, but uh, we haven't, I'm afraid, seen anything yet. And our righteous moral outrage at what we have seen is going to be tested to the to the sky when we start seeing the what one of my colleagues calls the groznification of urban Ukraine. When when he starts doing what he's done in Syria, what he's done in um, uh, in in Chechnya uh, in the late nineties, when he when we start seeing that happen in suburban Kiev 
and Mariupol and Kharkiv, we've already been seeing it. Our, our willingness to sit by and watch uh, is going to be really tested. Um, it's going to be extremely difficult because we cannot directly intervene. James? So, Ed, one of the things that appears to me is, you know, people worried about like a land war in Europe and Russia and everything. Their military is just not that impressive. I mean, Omar Bradley famous said, amateurs do tactics, professionals do logistics. I mean, the fact that they are an adjacent country with really short supply lines, and, you know, I know it, it's early, it'll change because it'll just overwhelm me, but they don't even have air superiority. They can move a 40-mile column three miles a day. I, I mean, if, if they started an invasion, you know, other than the, the N-word, the West would beat the shit out of them. And we're just getting more intelligence in the way that they operate, in, in, you know, their equipment and everything else. I mean, militarily, Putin's given up a lot here. He is, and it's the fact that that you're right, James, that the West would beat the shit out of them that makes the nuclear threat so worrying. Because it would would, would lead to much more rapid escalation. Um, uh, Clearly, Putin, in the narrowness of the feedback and advice he's getting, um, clearly um, was completely misinformed about the kind of reception that the Russian invaders would would get in Ukraine. Uh, And that the whole sort of operation was predicated on capture a few airports with special forces, um, deny Ukrainian airspace, maybe bump off two or three of the, the leadership, and they'll fold like a cheap suit. And that was clearly what the entire military strategy was predicated on. Uh, that is now in tatters. This is a massive, massive defeat in the information war as well as the on-the-ground war. And I've no doubt that unless you get some wild card, Hail Mary, China-mediated intervention, that we're now going to move into the Groznification stage of, of, of this. And that there will be slowly, but in deadly earnestness, a revisiting, I'm sure it's happening now, of Russia's military strategy. Its submission is now, if they're not going to be welcomed as as Slavic brothers, well, then they have to be forced to submit. And that's, I think, going to prove quite horrendous. I I want to say something that could easily get me in trouble, but I I, I think our audience and people are sophisticated enough to know what I say. So, you, you know, you had a Syria intervention, and, and it was brutal. It was, it was gut-wrenching. It was awful. But people, you know, we went to Iraq, and we killed a lot of people rather stupidly, in Vietnam really stupidly. And, and, but what's going to come out of this, and there's going to be massive slaughter, it's going to be people that look like Look like us, all right? It's not, it's not the same. In, in, it's a horrible thing. It, 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 I'm not condoning it, but you've you got to acknowledge that. And when, when these vi- images come into to Western Europe or come into the United States or Canada, I think, the, you know, this sort of talk about I care more about what's going on our border and, you know, what Neville Chamberlain said, no one knew what Czechoslovakia was. I, 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 think, I think they're misreading 
the, the, the politics of this. And I, I apologize for bringing this up, but I, 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 I think it's part of what's going on and part of what's going to go on. I think that's right. Um, I'd, I'd sort of add one dimension to what you've just said, which is it's, it's, I don't think it's so much racially that they resemble us. I think it's that culturally they seem like us. Uh, you know, they can talk, they can give interviews in English, they use idioms um, and they use social media in the way that we can recognise that they're quite sophisticated in how they communicate. I mean, they've been brilliantly sophisticated in this information war. And so I think it's more that, that they feel like us rather than look like us, um, necessarily. Right. So I worked there, well, I've been there four or five times, this during when... when, when President Bush, 45, I guess it was 43, was president. And uh, uh, you're right, the, 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 the whole class, I never had a, a problem with English, the political class there all speaks English. They, they dress like Westerners. They're, they're really good-looking people. They have a, you know, they have a, kind of look like Eastern Europeans, like a 20%, you know, Asian influence from the, you know, came back when they were invaded. But... You know, in Zelensky, I mean, he could have a talk show in the United States. And that's, he's a Had lot different character than Assad in Syria. Yeah, he could. I mean, um, you know, if you're European, if you're German, you're, I mean, I, I've only been to Kiev a couple of times, but I flew from Munich. You're there like an hour later. Yeah. I mean, this is... This is like flying from, you know, I don't know, New York to... Yeah, Atlanta. I've done the thing, I can tell you, I, I can't remember, I've done it four or five times. You'd, you'd go to Munich or you'd go to Frankfurt and you'd switch planes and it was like flying from Atlanta to New York. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? But I think in terms of the reception of refugees, you're right. There is a, there's a racial element here. And we've seen some disturbing reports, which I hope the polls are cracking down on of non-white refugees fleeing Ukraine, being put in separate lines at the border to white Ukrainians. Um, and that's, that's unacceptable. Um, uh, you know, it is at a basic human level, but also at an information war level, this is nuts. Yeah, I, before I turn it over to Al, I, I just want to give a shout out to my friend, Sean Penn. You know, Sean is a, he, he's not exactly, you know, got got every marble that you can have, but boy, mm -hmm. no one can doubt his courage. I mean, he went down and interviewed El Chapo, but I mean, he he just barely got out of there. And the the Ukrainians are, are, are very appreciative of Sean. I think he's going to do some creative stuff here that'll move public opinion. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope that Bernard Henri Levy doesn't show up too much because he has <laughs> <opposite> effect. <laughs> and and I would just, uh, you've been a fabulous, I would add one thing, just a, a note of history in your comment about uh, the, the ineptitude of the Russian military so far. Uh, one of my dear friends and teaching colleagues is David Eisenhower, who I one time asked who his grandfather thought was the greatest general in World War II, thinking it would be Bradley or Patton uh, or Ridgeway or someone. He said, oh, that was simple, Zhukov. Uh, and I think the Russians apparently don't have a Zhukov today, thank God. Thank you very much. And you remain our number one guest. Thank you, Ed. Thank you both. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, man.
Okay, James, now we have a favorite section, the terrific questions that we get from listeners, which we sometimes try to supply semi-terrific answers. Jeff in St. Peach, excuse me, St. Pete Beach, Florida. Uh, this is, you're going to like this one. He said, Biden needs to have his sister soldier moment where he speaks out against the woke far left with its self-defeating language and ideology. The Dems are in real trouble. The polls are not picking it up. If we don't shake off these far left people and ideas and language they traffic in, we're dead as a party and the fascists will take control. I would just say to our listeners out there, if anyone doesn't know what the sister soldier moment was, it was during James's direction of the Bill Clinton campaign in 1992 and Clinton went to, I believe it was a Jesse Jackson event. Uh, and there was a rap singer named Sister Soldier who had rapped about killing police. And, and Clinton took them on. And it, and it really, it, it really, I think in a way, James, you can address this much better, kind of define Clinton as, for lack of a better term, a new yeah, type it Democrat. Was stabbing Jews also. It was, it was highly offensive art. It, so this question is really on the mark. It, in, you know, when you're blatant as well as President Biden has, it's multiple causes. One of the causes is, is his rating among Democrats is much lower than it should be. And this is a result of the wokes and the Cory Bushes and the Rashida Tlaib uh, and the people like this that are constantly complaining, going telling people that he's not doing enough. And by the way, I just... The Justice Democrats, who is the kind of sponsor of these people, have issued a strong statement against any sanctions against Russia. I have a suspicion. Oh, my God, really? I cannot, I cannot prove this, but I would bet on myself. They're getting funding from Russia. The, the, that, the, 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 the Justice Democrats, the working families, whatever they are, I mean, it might not be a direct check, but they have cutouts. This is the most valuable thing that they have going for them. I'm telling y'all, they, 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 they're not just wrong. And, and I used to say they were silly and naive, but they're starting to cause irreparable harm to the United States. Boy, that's for sure. And your question is right on. I think it's, it's more significant than any of us realize. And I, I would not, or, or I wouldn't be surprised if they're getting funding, you know, from the Koch brothers. Because if I, if I were the Koch brothers and I wanted to spend the most effective dollar I can, I, I, would, I would give it to, to the squad. Well. Uh, I mean that. I, I mean that. Now, I, I don't have, I'll be very clear, I don't have any proof. I only have suspicions. But my suspicions are, are, are not, without some merit. We need to check further on that. John in Sea Ranch, California, and it's a question also that Susan in upstate New York asked, does the Pomerantz resignation from the Manhattan DA's investigation of Trump mean the former guy's going to get away with tax fraud and bank fraud? Pretty discouraging. John, I got to tell you, I am really worried about what happened up there, and I really think that, man, that new Manhattan DA ought to be held accountable. These guys, Pomerantz and the other guy, had been investigating Trump for two years. Pomerantz was considered the best criminal lawyer prosecutor in New York, or as good as any. The other guy was an expert in this. And this new DA comes in and in a matter of weeks decides, well, maybe there's not a case. What was it? Was it just naivete, stupidity, or is there something more nefarious? I really think uh, you're on to something, John. And I hope the New York Times and others uh, will tell us uh, what this was all about. Well... Again, I have no proof. I understand if, if he didn't, if wasn't interested in the report. It was on his desk. They tried to get him to read it. 
And if I were, and I'm suspicious, but I, I don't, I don't have any proof, but something tells me at some level some money changed hands. Yeah. I don't know that, but it's really kind of odd. And, you know, it got a lot of supporters and, you know, a lot of people. Uh, and I'm, there's something that smells in Denmark here. And I suspect it's not cheese. Yeah, it's rotten, though. Joe I don't and, know that. Joe in the Woodlands, Texas. Again, James. And by the way, on Sea Ranch is right by Camp Pendleton. Yeah. And I went there. And remember Bill Freehand? He just died. He was a great catcher. They great had like catcher. a celebrity golf yeah. tournament. Yeah. And he was so hungover, he tried to hit a drive and fell down. <laughs> World-class athletes. <laughs> it was one of the funniest things I ever saw. <laughs> Hard to catch or play golf drunk. Anyway, Joe in Woodlands, Texas, asked, he said, I love the work that AmeriCorps members accomplish throughout the country, specifically coming to communities after natural disasters like New Orleans after Katrina or Joplin, Missouri after those tornadoes. James, where do you rank AmeriCorps as one of the Clinton presidency's legacies? Well, I don't rec put it with the human genome project or stopping the genocide or, you know, leading the best economy we ever had and not going to war, but I put it pretty damn high. And, I mean, they have made not just the people that they help, but the people that do the helping's lives immeasurably richer and better. And I, I think it's a, a stunning accomplishment. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree, and, you know, the more the better. I know they've made unbelievable difference here in New Orleans, and, and it, it's a terrific thing, and we need more AmeriCorps. And I, I think people like, I think, the, you know, again, it was inspired... You know, my friend Harris Wofford had a lot to do with the peace, you know, Kennedy. It, 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 it's part of a long lineage of, you know, really productive things that Democrats really favor. Yep. Uh, Ron in Moab, Utah, says, back in the 90s, I had the opportunity to travel to Moscow several times on business, including walks around the Kremlin. One of the more striking monuments along the Kremlin walls was a tribute to the hero cities that resisted the fascist... In Invaders in World War II, the Great Patriotic War. Prominent among them was Kiev, which resisted Germany fiercely. Do you think Putin has passed that site and thought about what that may entail for his, his misguided initiative? I don't know, Ron, if he's passed it. What I do know is he wouldn't give a goddamn if he did. Uh, this, is a, this is just a brutally thuggish man who has no sentimentality whatsoever. So, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I think your question is a really good one, and the simple answer is wouldn't bother Putin at all. Well, and one of the things I did in Kiev is I, I, they took me to a, a park that had all the Soviet weapons. And, I mean, I, the T-34 is one of the most greatest weapons of war ever. We tend to forget that. And they had a, it was, a, you know, it was over there, and, and they had a, a, a MiG. And they used to make really good airplanes. I mean, they gave us hell, and the MiGs gave us hell in Korea, you know? And what, what I don't quite understand is what's happened because, I mean, it, it, I know it's a fog of war, but it, it looks like they still don't have air superiority in Ukraine. And, and understand, they don't need carriers. They, they're, they're right there. They've got really short supply lines, and they can't supply anybody. And it, 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 there's something, there's, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a rotten, Russia's a, a, a rotten country. And, you know, I've been to St. Petersburg, and I've been to Moscow, but, but they're very consumer-oriented. 
All right? And, and they love Adidas and Levi's and, and you, know, you know, Apple. They love Apple phones. Well, guess what? You're going to be able to buy any of that because you got to pay for it in euros or dollars and you got to sell it in rubles. And mm. right now it's 112 rubles to one dollar. I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't buy that, that this can't really undermine his, his, his domestic position in Russia. Oh, I think, and I think, I think we've got to do it all. Why in the hell are there 30% of the banks in Russia exempt from this SWIFT bank? Get them all. Hound them. Seize. Doing right. the SWIFT bank thing was a huge, a huge thing. This is, this is yeah, as Ed Lou said, we, we have never seen left. sanctions like this. Right. And that's, uh, you know, and maybe we can ratchet up some more, but boy, they I, have. Yeah, I'm, like, and, I'm almost to the point where I don't seize these yachts, torpedo them. <laughs> Mike and right. Teesside, UK, we have a question from the UK. This is good. Teesside, right. I think that's right, UK. He says Republicans will surely have to decide eventually if they want to join Putin's gang and continue their path to a totalitarian state or if they're going to at least try to portray themselves as supporters of a world based on the rule of law. How do you think things will play out, James, with Republicans well, on this? I, I, there's, a, there's a lot of 180s going on, all right? And the thing was, we ought to be more concerned about what's happening at the border. I don't, I, I, I'm really, you know, Russia's never done anything to me. They never called me a bad name, all right? And Boy, you, you, you can see the reversals coming, all right? We, we need to run on this, and they need to go in these Eastern European communities, which have been moving away from us, Ukrainians, Poles, Slovenians, Romanians, Hungarians, Bulgarians, and everything, and, and inform them where elite opinion over there was. Because it was really big. Well, it's not really, I don't know, why do we care about that? You know, and we don't need to sacrifice anything. And again, I come back to, to my thing that I have no proof, but this is a free country. I think there's money involved everywhere. That's, that's, that is my number one position that I believe. I, 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 and I think that history will prove me right. I think it's involved with the Justice Democrats. I think it's in, involved, you know, with, with, with the American right. I think it's involved in a lot of things. Well, I would just say they have been doing 180s, but knowing knowing some of these people, uh, they're perfectly capable of doing a reverse 180, and I suspect that things get tough. No, generally people tell that's, you who they are. Right? That's exactly you uh, can make you know, value where they're going to go. All right? We know, we know yeah. who J.D. Vance yeah, is. Yeah, we do. They don't have to tell us. All right? Doug, Doug yeah. in Encinita, Encinitas, California, that's says he asked a very good question. And this is something people ask me often. Is Joe Biden too old to bear the burdens of the presidency? Well, Joe Biden is only a little bit older than us. Uh, James a little bit behind me. Uh, and uh, I can imagine what those burdens are like. There's no question he sometimes seems old. Uh, I am encouraged by his performance of the last couple of weeks. And our dear friend, the late Walter Dellinger, talked to Biden about the Supreme Court nominations just a couple days before Walter passed away and said he was delighted and even a little bit surprised at how sharp Biden was. So I think uh, he probably can't keep the schedule he kept before. Uh, I hope he's paced uh, well over there, uh, but um, and I wouldn't expect him to run for re-election, but I'm not going to worry a whole lot about his age right now. I'm more worried about his performance, which in the last couple of weeks has been awfully good. So 
if my geography is right, and I think it is, we got, we got a strong base in one of my favorite parts of the United States, one of the prettiest parts of the United States is North San Diego County. Because I think Encinitas and Sea Ranch are, are, are pretty close to each other. All right, so yesterday's Mardi Gras, and uh, I rode in Rex. I've done it six, seven times before. And about 15 minutes before we got to the end, I said, I've made a mistake. <laughs> I was like, man, I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm old. <laughs> but uh, you're right. He's, you, you know, what you give up sometimes in vigor, you, you gain in wisdom and experience. It, it, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but it's all like his entire life has been in preparation for this, for this. moment. Right. I, 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 I don't think his, his life was in preparation or given the greatest state of the union ever. I don't know if his life was in preparation for like rallying people or anything, but but you, you got to say, you know, what, what I want more than energy now is wisdom. And it, so far, so good. Yep, I agree. So, you know, so James, so good. our final question is from Jeffrey in Raleigh, North Carolina, a, a town that's right. dear to my heart. My son's down there. And he says, the United States is one of the top oil producers in the world, I think number three. Why don't we use the oil we produce instead of buying oil for other places for $150 a barrel? Let me guess. Is it the big oil companies? Why? Okay. So it's, it's a worldwide commodity. So, so, and I understand, and I hear this a lot in Louisiana, we need to ramp up our, our domestic production. Well, you know, it takes a long time to, to, to drill an oil well and to have it online and put the product in, in, in pipelines and deliver it to people. You, you just don't, you just can't do that. All right, and 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 a lot of them don't want to do it because they 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 when they drill an oil well, you have to look at what it's going to be three years from now, and then you're stuck with if it, if the price goes to thirty five dollars a barrel. So it, it, it's and they could release the strategic petroleum reserve. But I, it helps some. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, help much. You know, they got to build these these liquid natural gas docks in Europe. They can do that. All right, there's some things that you can do, but but I don't, you know, if you just say, well, to hell with the environment, to hell with global warming, I've got to tell you this UN's report that came out, which is 376 scientists, you know, we may have to, I'm not going to sort of argue that, but there's an idea that somehow there's a switch and you can turn it on. I don't think that comports. And if you consume it yourself, you still got to pay for it because the company can sell it on the open market in the world. And yep. it's, a, it's, a, it's a fungible thing. So it, I appreciate the question. I appreciate the thought. But I, I think this is one of the things, and I hate to be the guy to do this. It's a lot more complicated than it seems. Why they shut down the nuclear plants, I don't know. I've never understood the, the left's opposition to nuclear uh, you're right, they got to be engineered to T. The French get, out, I don't know, 70% of their energy. From and the Germans, the Germans have decided to go Had back and, and, and reopen, Stupid. or you know, keep open uh, three of their plants that they were planning to close. So, you know, I think this right. is, is eye-opening in a lot of ways. Jeff, we appreciate right. the question. And, I appreciate uh, the question, but it, yep. it, it, it's, it's really... It, it is. You know, I, and I hate to say this because I strive for simplicity, but it's, it, it's really complicated but
Okay, keep those, keep those letters and questions coming in. Uh, we love them. We'll get to as many as we can. Tell us where you're from. All right, James, now for the outrage of the week. This is an easy one. This is low-hanging fruit. Major League Baseball. The first week of the season is already off as the owners and players remain deadlocked on labor negotiations. If you want to know where most of the blame lies, read Ken Rosenthal's terrific piece in The Athletic. By the way, that's a publication we really like, James. It's cool, do we? New York do Times, we? But it is great. The blame lies with the short-sighted owners. This poses a real threat to the future of the game. If there's a long lock lockout, baseball is going to have a hard time ever recovering. Yeah, there's some players who make a lot of money, but virtually all the owners are rich, more than a few billionaires. And with COVID on the decline, America needs our pastime. Commissioner Rob Manfred, who said this is all about the fans, BS. They don't think about the fans at all in this. They think about their deep pockets. And if you can't, Rob Manfred, if you can't tell your owners what's in their interest, you don't belong in that post. Get out. James, we need that cry. Play ball. Well, we do, but what's happening is I've, I've been a national season ticket holder since 2005. I, I love baseball, all right? And now I'm getting to the point which, it did, you know, I'm older, so I'm not in, in their prime demographic or anything, but fewer and fewer people are, are following it. I mean, do they know what the hell's going on in the country? That, 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 that they're trying to make this thing into the National Soccer League, I mean, the National Hockey League, where, you know, you got a few dedicated, you know, really intense fans, but it's it not really part of a nationwide discussion. And that's always been what baseball was, and they throwing this ball over the fence, I can tell you. So in, instead of an outrage, you know, everybody's craving really good information. And I, the best in a view I've seen so far is, is on Amanpour, which is in company, which is on PBS, which is related to, to you particularly, in this podcast where Walter Isaacson interviews Bill Browder. You got to look at this, all right? I mean, Browder probably knows as much about Putin and Putin as anybody in the West. And I mean, he takes, he takes you through it in, in a way that you can't believe. And, and what you come out of it is, why aren't we, we need to do more, sanction more, freeze more, do everything you can, because this guy's a really, really knowledgeable, brilliant guy, and it, it's, it, it's long. He, he gives him, plenty, well, you know, who's obviously <laughs> a bright guy, uh, I had lunch with him Monday, uh, and he, he told me about it, and I watched it, and I, I can't recommend it enough. Not well, not. another another really smart person on Russian Putin is Fiona Hill, who we hope to get on this program sometime in the next several weeks. Right, but but Browder right, knows these these financial sanctions, and I was just reading a piece, basically Lloyd Blankfein. You say what you want about Lloyd Blankfein. <laughs> He's the, the epitome of an out of stupid man. And everybody has the same thing. To hell with it all. Squeeze as hard as you can in as many places as you possibly can. This is a war. Get over it. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Right.
Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Workable, Stamps.com, and the Jordan Harbinger Show in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. 